Uh, welcome to Mongo Spaces. It's another Thursday evening today. We have the CEO of WPP Scan Group. They reported the results, uh, I think, earlier this week. And she's here to talk to us a lot about the company, her journey, and help us uh, be able to understand the company a bit better. My name is Eric Mokaya, the founder of Mongo Capital. Let's start by introducing our speaker. Patricia, maybe you can start by introducing yourself. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. My name, as you've heard, yes, is Patricia. And the picture there, yes, that is me. I don't know what to say about myself. I'm a passionate people person. I love getting to understand people, very curious about people. A lot of the work that I've done through my years have really been around understanding consumer insight and perhaps figuring out how that understanding of consumer insights helps drive business. I think that's a real summary about who I am. Great. Tell us a bit about your journey to maybe entering the world of no marketing, you know. How did you get started? Did you always have an interest in this area? Actually, that's why I started. From the time I graduated from university, I was recruited at the university as a management trainee at Unilever. Unilever at the time was called East African Industries, and it was the foremost, probably marketing FMCG at the time. I joined there, was a brand manager, marketing, worked in the UK, worked in South Africa, and left after 15 years as the marketing director for the business for the region. Then I went to the brewery, EABL, as a marketing director, did that for a few years, three years before transitioning then into general management, went to run the Uganda breweries and the international business before again being called to a different thing to set up the L'Oreal business, set up the L'Oreal business, another FMCG. That set up from scratch, did an acquisition, I think, which was first of its time at the time, which was buying a local business called Consumer Products at the time. Did that, was thoroughly exhausted and decided, you know what, I need to pivot and go into a space called Making a Difference. And that's when I joined Stanford Seed, which was an initiative out of Stanford University in Silicon Valley, which was charged with really supporting the transformation of SMEs in the region. And when we talk about transformation is looking at what are all the areas that you need to address in a business, um, putting in place all the structures that you'd ordinarily have in big business so that they can scale. And our overall objective was really to create more jobs. And when you create jobs, you alleviate poverty. And that is what we were doing when we we're looking at scaling out, scaling up SMEs, the biggest job creation sector in emerging markets anyway. And then that's when I was called to do this job back again to the corporate, very exciting space for me. I had sat on the board of this business until 2020. So to come back as a CEO was fantastic. It's a space I loved. I've always been a hardcore a marketer. I love, I said, that space of insights and converting those insights into consumer propositions. Then that can become commercial opportunities that deliver value for business and for consumers, for shareholders, for stakeholders. And that is why I'm where I am today. Quite a journey. I think there's a lot to double click on. Maybe I'll start maybe to unpack a few of us and then we can dive right in. So maybe let's start with the EABL and maybe the brewery space. What did you learn from that and in terms of marketing, those kind of products? When I chose to go from a, a FMCG of consumer household products, all nice, warm, lovely goods, to going to a business, which is great fun, but which of course has its inherent labels from a society point of view, was really to challenge myself, to challenge my ability to look at a category of products and 
really make them acceptable and drive a messaging that everything actually is okay if you treat it responsibly. And so I think moving to the brewery, one of my first tasks was trying to drive the responsible drinking agenda. And that's the time we really built a lot of work around the responsible drinking agenda. That's the time also Senator really ramped up Senator, which was the lower value, lower priced beer, because what we're trying to do is create a safe option for people who were drinking illicit things because everything else they felt was expensive. But more than anything else, it was a time when we were really starting to build the brands. One of my biggest tasks was making Tusca the biggest brand in the region. And that's why when I created Tusca Project Fame at the time, that was really to make it a much bigger profile and stature brand for East Africa, looking at spirits and trying to figure out how we start to make spirits brands which are acceptable, drank more responsibly, drive the experience around them. And so I think that was all the challenge. Other than that end of the challenge and the responsible drinking, it's the first time I was in an industry where taxes really drove everything that you did. Your pricing, when the financial fiscal year came to an end, it was always a conversation, what are we going to do about our pricing? Because a lot of times you didn't have the control over it. So that was for me, I think, a new space that I learned, that public space, that lobby space, that advocacy space. And the awareness around how that plays into everything you do, even when you're trying to drive consumer products. And luckily for them, in the new finance bill of 2023, there are some more taxes, especially oh. in the advertising. <laughs> Whatever you do, yes. it was an industry which you just couldn't run away from. Taxes was such a fundamental part of everything we did. And what happens to a Tusca project fail, by the way? That's with everything. You know, it has a season. It had run its course yeah. and then moved on to bigger, better things as well. So in terms of marketing, and I think that's one of the key components of marketing, it's about new ideas all the time. And then also not being shy from throwing away some good ideas, some better ideas. Yeah. Like from your experience, what makes a good marketing campaign? A good marketing campaign for me is one that's grounded on a very compelling consumer insight. Now, what do I talk about consumer insights? Consumer insights are the things that you see people do, but they may not necessarily understand the connection around why they do it. And if you can hit that sweet spot around it and create a messaging, then you really drive the affinity and the loyalty for that particular brand. When we used to look at some of the biggest insights, we started, oh, years, I'm talking years back, my Unilever days, when we used to sit down and say, okay. Let's look at the consumer insight around, say, washing powder. Now, people start at the surface and say, oh, I do a washing powder. All I'm going to do is a functional element. I'm going to tell you that this is dirty. This is going to clean. Now, if I do, it, do that, the next person is going to say, I'm going to clean it better. The next person is going to say, no, no, mine does it even better. And you're going to go down an endless tunnel of no end and the next better ETC. But when you then combine the functionality and the strong insight. So if I look at something like Omo at that time, when we sat down and said, what is a consumer insight around anything to do with washing? And one of the biggest things, just watching, especially anybody who washes clothes or even a mother with her kids and they come from school and you look at that uniform and you're like, oh my goodness, how are we ever going to get it clean? Also, there's the economic aspects around that, that you want it to last longer. So when you look, and by the way, the reason why I want it clean is you have to look good when you go to school. If you're not worried about this thing, 
if you actually go to school is, you know, what every single mother believes in, children, especially as an African mother, your children have to go to school. That's what is going to make them become better in life and everything else. But also if they go to school, it's likely that they're going to get dirty because you can't go to school and come back clean. The person who's in school and is just sitting there being clean, they're probably not learning much. They're not running. They're not creating. So locking that insight and sitting down and saying, actually, it is okay for your child to go and get dirty because we have this product called Omo, which is going to remove every single stain. And within that, you've actually understood the psyche that runs behind why it is okay to tell a mother to go ahead and let that child do what they have to do to be the best that they can be because the functional aspect, which I'm going to sort out, is there for you. And I think those are the big powerful things that we need to look at when you drive marketing. What is the real big insight that drives who you are and what you stand for? And here, I have to push you a bit. What's your best marketing campaign you've ever run? Oh boy, there's so many. When I was a very, very young marketer, right to the beginning of my career, I went to a training in India at the time and I heard, and there was this case study about this amazing brand called Fair and Lovely. And it was a massive brand in India, massive, massive. And they sold it on the fact that culturally in India, the fairer the skin you are as a woman, the more likely you're supposed to get married, etc. Very sexist stuff. This is 30 years ago, so bear with me here. And came back to Kenya. And at that time, as you can imagine, there was just a lot of stigma around anything about coloration, around anything. And there's still stigma today, by the way. It's just that it is done a lot worse, but there was just a lot of stigma. That's the time all the worst of the products were banned and it was a very good thing. And I came back to the business. I said, I think we have legs for this product. And everybody said, no, probably we can't. We've done a habits and attitude study and every Kenyan, all people say, actually, the way they want their skin is exactly the way they like it. But I'm like, but when I go to a supermarket, I'm seeing all these people buying these products, putting them at the bottom of their basket and then piling milk and everything on top of them. So surely there must be something there. And so speaking again to a lot of people, I started an observation as well. When a child is born, you see somebody say, oh, it's so beautiful child, it's going to be fair. You ask yourself, okay. And when the child wasn't fair, nobody said the same thing. And so you start to see there's something under there around the way we feel and we begin. And then the second thing is I'll speak to them and they say, oh my goodness, when I was young, my skin was a lot fairer. Now I don't know because of being out in the sun. It has changed and everything else. And therein, I saw a potential insight and came back and said, look, we're going to launch this product, but we're going to launch it on the grounds that make sense to us. And the sense that it makes for us is that actually, as Africans, it's not about being light or fairer. It's about having a smoother, nicer skin. And indeed, when you look at your skin when you are young and when you get older, because of the elements, it actually gets a lot worse. And so I was able to push through the concept and launch very lovely in this market under the banner that at the time is it brings back the beautiful skin color of your youth. None of the negative things that you're lighter or whatever, but it's bringing back this youth because everybody believed when I was younger, my skin was better. It went on to become one of the most profitable businesses. It created a completely new category. In by the time I was leaving Unilever, I remember there was every other fair and this, fair and that, and every other product. So right from the beginning, I think that was one that really excited me, which I can speak to. There are many others, but I think I'll speak to that one for now in the interest of time. 
Interesting. You journeyed abroad a bit. You went to South Africa, you said you spent a bit of time there. How's the market there different from the Kenyan market? You Notice know, some of the insights you gained from there. I think for me, South Africa was a great learning. I was learning from a personal point of view because when I went, I had two very young children. I had a six-month baby and a two-year-old a toddler. And my role was regional. So I was heading what we call the Innovation Center for Africa. And so it involved a lot of travel. You can imagine how tough it is being in a different market. Unfortunately, my husband, because he runs a business here, could only commute to come and visit. So I was literally alone with these two children and having to travel the continent back and forth and everything else. So there was a personal growth that I got from that particular journey. But I think for me in South Africa as well was just the ability to be the voice for being, which was really growing at the time, this black empowerment, really giving a space to show that people of all other colors other than white could actually be in the leadership positions for those roles. I could speak up. I could fit in with both because fortunately, I never had to grow up in that environment. The sensitivities around color did not exist because I was not South African. And trying to be that bridge was a great space for me. And being able to be a voice to both sides. When I'm with the whites sit down and say, when you do that, this is how black person may feel and with a black person say when you do that this is the way it may look to the white side so I think for me that presented a lot of opportunities also it's a time that they run a big campaign to try and drive that sensitization and leading that and being able to just say it like it is and no judging you or saying oh my goodness another black person with a chip on their shoulder no because you you are seen as an outsider I think for me was a great experience but more than anything else it's also the discipline that I learned and the more strategic work that needed to be done, which I really love. That's when I started the journals. When you look at Royco, good old Royco, which was ever read. And we've just done the acquisition of a Knorr and looking at how we're going to transition Royco into Knorr from a red and everything brand to something that's going to be green. And this is what's going to be and everything else had merged this big acquisition that had happened. So yeah, that was an exciting time. And then you pivoted to Stalford Seed. So tell us a bit about that and how that's done. Maybe your marketing experience helped you in that. that. I think Stanford Seed was many things. Stanford Seed was fulfilling my desire to really understand the, the new ecosystem, but also to have an opportunity to share a lot of the experience I've had. By the time I was doing that, I had done what, just a little, almost 25 years in corporate in fast moving FMCG. So the ability to sit down and say, all this work, all this training, all this exposure, how could I help transfer it to businesses who perhaps do not have the same capacity to have that degree of exposure? So that for me was a good part. But more than anything, also, it allowed me to get into the space of SMEs, really get into a setup where These are people who are big, who are bold and who have such big dreams and they do it with guts. And that I think for me was the excitement, the boldness. You have no backup other than the fact that you believe that this business of yours is going to do it. And I think just being in that was a great time for me. It allowed me to live vicariously, to be an entrepreneur, something that I've always wanted to be, but I've never been brave enough to be. And what brought you back down to Scan Group? I think it was a calling of, I think there's some things that are in your blood and you may run away and you come back and they keep calling. So I think what attracted me, other than the fact it was an industry, which my goodness, I just sat there thinking, I I love this space. I love marketing, creativity and everything else. I think 
I'm a frustrative creative in every single way. So it was just good to get back into the heart of this particular space. It was also good. Although I always felt that when I went to Stanford, said, look, I'm done with driving targets and shares and shareholders and numbers. After five years, I started to miss the edginess of it. I always tell everybody I started to feel a little bit like a Bugatti or Maserati doing 20 MPH on a superhighway. And so I think that's part of the reason why this attracted me. The fact that it's going to be a set and environment that I enjoy. And it's just going to be a great challenge for me. I understood the business because I'd sat on the board for a while. So I had a sense of who they are. And I think with everybody, you always have this great desire to leave one last legacy, this last stretch to make a difference. All those things, I guess, came together and they came together here. Tell us a bit about the WPP Scandal Group. I'm aware of the global brand that is WPP itself, yes. and then Scandal Group is like a local affiliation. So maybe you can tell us a bit about the journey to fusing these two companies together and what's the relationship between the local brand and the, the global one? Because I also follow the global one in terms of their earnings calls and all. Okay. I'm now familiar a bit with the WPP Scandal Group. But for someone who's not familiar, who's just coming yeah. into the market, right? What can you tell them about the business and what you do as a business model? Okay, so Scanad started, it was founded by a local, very entrepreneurial and fantastic businessman called Barrett 40 years ago. He started the advertising agency as Scanad. Then about 20 years ago, he decided he needed to list. He was going to list because that was the way he felt that this business was going to become global. He also wanted the international and global affiliation. And more than anything, also, when you list, you raise capital to grow. So went to a listing when that was listed. One of the biggest shareholders that came on board was, of course, this big global conglomerate of advertising, marketing, communication experience companies called WPP. So they went on then to take a majority stake in this particular business. So they're a majority shareholder of the business. And we still have, of course, just a little over 40% local shareholders. So if we look at who we are, a business of strong fundamentals, if we look at gross revenue is at around 2.2 billion, we have a base which is fantastic because if you look at our revenue, 64% of it comes from our top 20 clients where we are able and now supporting brands across 23 com countries in Africa. We have over 500 employees across the region. But I think the other good thing is for the first time this year, we were ranked by value as the number 20 most valuable brand in Kenya. In terms of what we do, we are a consolidated full-service client offering business. Um, so from communication experience, commerce, and technology. And we do that through a network of agencies, many of which are leaders globally in their areas. So from the creative spaces, services on and offline, experience, including tech, PR and influence, digital media, including social influence and performance. We do a lot of the media buying and mass media buying. We do shop activation and we do consulting. So actually, when I say we're full service, we're a full service agency offering all those areas. Interesting. Because you are more like behind the scenes, you want the brands to shine, not you in the background. So if you maybe tell people a bit about some of the things that Scan Group is involved with, then people can understand a bit better and then have a relationship to you directly. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think of and write what is something that I can speak to. So if I speak to some of the clients, right, 
across Africa mm. where Airtel's agency. So anything around Airtel that has been developed by us. We're the agency that supports equity, KCB. So when you see the communication and the ads and everything so that we have developed, we're the partner for Coca-Cola. When you see anything around Coca-Cola, that is something that we have developed. So I think I have used some of the, some of the big, more FMCG brands. So let me give you another one, G Insurance. I think there was a campaign for those of you who live in Nairobi. There was a campaign a couple of months, maybe earlier this year that was developed by us. That was our campaign. So when you look at L'Oreal, all the work that's happening now around the brands, around Maybelline and the growth around it, that is us. All the social media influencers speaking about a lot of the brands. Yeah. The launch the other day of La Roche-Posay, that is what we do. So we do a lot of stuff. If you look at all the media that you see out there, be it digitally, be it for any of those brands, we do the buying and the placement of it. Yeah. So those are some of the things that we do. Let me share something because I've spoken a little bit about the more commercial stuff. For those of you in Kenya, for example, you may have seen the hashtag no stain, no shame. That was developed by us, right? And it was really a campaign to try and change social behavior, thinking, and driving that, the change the conversation, the bringing together of the creator of that particular brand to drive that and all that communication in order to try and drive social shame around the way society views menstruation and periods. We did that. So these are some of the things also that we do. Who are your customers, per se? Are your customers the ultimate consumers of the ads? Or, yeah. No, our client is a business who recruits us. So that's the first point. And that client then has a brand which needs to sell something, needs to market something to a consumer. So we are the in-between for that client to support them and help them make sure whatever it is they're trying to say about their product, brand, service, that it's said to their customer or to their consumer in the right way in order to drive both from awareness to trial to loyalty to whatever it is you're trying to achieve. So that's what we do. Behind this insolence again? Yes, because we're offering you a service. And about the relationship with WPP, the global brand, are they very involved in the business or are they more like hands-off and then they let you do the work? Well, the shareholders, we borrow a lot from them. This is a big a global brand with presence all over the world. So you can imagine all the tools and the benefits that we get. So in terms of anything that is happening, anything cutting edge, we have the scale and the access because we are one and the same. So that, I guess, is what happens from that perspective. What's the market share for WPP's current group in the country? Who are some of the competitors in this space? It's very difficult to read share because there isn't a way of doing it. We're the only listed people. So people are able to see how we're doing, but we don't know how anybody else is doing because they're not listed. The only thing we can look at is when we look at media buy. And when you see media buy, it's a gross value. You don't even know what exactly people have spent. We look at what is media spent. That's the only thing that can help us understand what is our share. But that is such a small aspect of marketing and what we do. So I guess it's difficult. I would still say when it comes to consolidated services in the spaces that I've talked to, we're still the leading brand in the markets in sub-Saharan Africa. How do you get new clients then? What's your pitch to them when you want to source for new clients? We just show them what we do and the capacity that we have. 
When I sit down and say I'm a consolidated full service agency and I can offer you services across development from communication to experience to commerce to technology, that's what I'm selling you. So you're sitting there saying, oh, look, I want to either reach this or I have this e-commerce. How do I get me more people to do it? Is there anything I can prove on it? How do I market on it? Or to the point where you sit down and say, listen, I've got this new product or service and I want to launch it. The strategy behind first, who's going to be the target? How do we make sure we're going to get them? What is the space that they're going to hear from? How do we then measure that, the performance of the messaging? So that is what we package and that's how we reach out. So usually it's done by a pitch process, what we call pitches uh, for a lot of the businesses where you're called and you have a brief and we give you the strategy and our ideas in terms of how we can support you to achieve the objective you've set. And that's then how a client then makes that choice. And then in terms of maybe getting the business itself, do you get like a blank check on what you need to create? So do they come look at your packages? Like, okay, if you have revenues of this, we put you here. Yeah. If you have revenues of that, yeah. you're over there. The costing is always based mm. on what it is you're trying to do and the time and the resources it's going to take. And again, it works both ways because clients have a budget. So this is the goal. This is what you want to do. This is the budget I have. That's the way it works as a client. Now as a client for longer than I've been now an agency. So you set a goal. This is the goal I have. This is the budget I have to do it. Then as an agency, they sit and say, okay, this is what you want to do. This is then what we can do for you. These are the people who are going to do it. And this is how much it's going to cost. And therefore, this is how we work within your budget. That's the way it works. It's a two-way. But then you put a bit of a markup for yourselves. Yes, yes. You try to. Yes. So we're running a business. So we put then a margin over the cost of the resources that we put behind developing whatever work we're developing for you as a client. Then, of course, if you have to put it out there, then that's your direct cost. And then in terms of successful campaigns, what are some of the metrics you're checking up? I know the U.S. has Nelson ratings and all. Do we have some metrics that you also check out in terms of? Let's see if you put a TV ad, how do you know it's a success? There's, there's ways of looking at return of investment. Right now with the technology thing, it makes sense because you're able to read how many people have seen it. You can also go even further and see how many people convert. And if it's something done, the online platforms and some of our technology platforms allow you to do that. So if I've marketed this particular product to this particular person, to this particular group, and there's this offer that's there, you're able then to see how many people are reading, are picking up that offer. So with technology, it's a lot easier to read. In, in the other areas like media, you read it from, for example, what is your net promoter score? You start to look at what is your awareness for that particular campaign because you have awareness goals that you want to drive. So those are some of the things that we use to measure the success of campaign. And if you feel like it's very important to measure this, oh, yes. uh, that's something oh, maybe you can I? speak to. As I said, I was a client for a lot longer than I was an agency. And return on investment is incredible. So even now, when I tell you how we plan your media, it's based on where in spaces and we're able to see for the investment you have, we're able to measure, did we actually hit the target that you wanted to? Yeah. So yes, return on investment is very important. One of the best businesses I have seen in terms of doing ROI is Facebook. And I think like the former CFO, I think she left a year or so ago. 
she actualized the part of the company itself being very good at audience targeting. They're very good at that and also measuring ROI. So I guess you learn a lot from that. Exactly. Also. And I think, as I said, anything done from a digital space is a lot easier to measure because you can actually see what are the impressions you've made. And it's easier to read and it's more real-time ability to read. Great. And Marit, you had the earnings briefing and you talked about a platform you're building, which is helping you become better at measuring metrics for clients. So maybe you can speak about that and what you're building there in terms of being maybe a digital fast kind of marketing agency. We have a number of platforms that we use. Feed, for example, is one. Feed is a performance measurement tool, which we developed. And the way it works, it literally looks at from the insight, what is going on to the market, puts, understands what is required. We then have a team of what we call community managers, then who recognize based on what we're reading out there, what quick content campaign can we develop. Then that is put out and it goes all the way back again and measures how we do that. And with that, we're able to literally for some of our clients, for example, if I talk about Diageo, EBL, or Airtel, or Coke, we're able to develop 300 unique pieces of content weekly. Yeah, because it's simply you set up a team and that's all they're looking at in the morning. What is the promotion or what is the message we want to send? What is happening out there that we're seeing? Who are the people who are going to listen? Okay, based on that, let's put this bit of content because that's what the community teams do. And that goes out. So that is one of the things that we do real time. The other one, Optimus, which I spoke to briefly as well, is really, it's an automation that drives customer acquisition. So again, with the banks, the way it works is we're able to look at lead generation. You set it up, it looks at groups of particular clients. What are they looking at? Then it can allows you to look at what is the sort of spaces they're interested in? What are their the habits? And based on that, the sort of products that would appeal for them. The teams are then able to figure out who then, what groups they can market it to. And if indeed there are gaps, what products can they develop? So it's a real-time automation tool that drives customer acquisition and growing that customer lifetime value at scale and at speed. At this point, I would want to tell the audience that we have 15 or so more minutes to go. We welcome your questions. So if you have questions for Patricia, she's here to answer them. Especially if you have something about the company and how she runs it. So I think you can do three or four things. So one, you can just check out our pins Twitch just below it. You can write a question. Number two, you can just request to speak and then we'll give you a chance to ask questions. And then number three, you can also just DM us. And then also you can just do hashtag Mongo Spaces. We're checking out all those three or four channels to be able to get your questions in. At this point, I want us to discuss about the company a bit more, about the financials. Maybe you can tell us a bit. When you came in, there was a bit of a cloud about the business itself, about the financials, something to do with subsidiaries. Perhaps in your first year, what are some of the things you've observed about the business and what was going wrong and how are you working to ride the ship? I think one of the things, I don't know if I would necessarily call it wrong. I think I would say that I, I look at the opportunity that we have. Given the capacity that we have, given the talent that we have, given the client base and the trust and the credibility that we built, I think that for me is the value I see. We have a lot to do to completely unlock our value. So that I think is the first thing. So spent the last year really trying to achieve that. 
The second thing is that in the new world that we live in, the whole space of sustainability, ESG is very big. When I look at what is going to be some of the areas that I'm going to be, the governance structure, we did a lot of work last year, really strengthened the board, increased the number of independent, non-executive directors. We then also increased our gender balance. So now we're 40% up on gender. So did all the right things, made sure the committees are chaired by independent directors. So all the governance stuff we, we really did. Now, the next thing is trying to unpack where and what do we want to focus on um, for the sustainability goals and what we're looking at. So that now becomes the next space that for me, I need to figure out how do we build that alongside, of course, my objectives, which is really position this group for growth with all our clients, really drive our agenda around equity among all the stakeholders. And keep continuing to highlight the products and services, especially in the future technology spaces that we have. So when I look at ESG, for example, five key areas that I think we're really going to figure out how we start to really drive those partnerships, people, governance, planets, and communities, really figuring out how we start to really bring that to life becomes one of the big spaces, which I'm particularly passionate about. Someone is asking whether you sell some shares within WPP Scan Group. No, I don't. I'm independent. But the CEO, you want to maybe show some skin in the game by getting some? Yes, I will. I will. But initially, I think it was important that I remained independent. But certainly, this is something that I will be looking to do. In terms of areas for growth, I think in the earnings calls, you talked about maybe taking out opportunities in other markets. And are there areas that you're really focused on? to drive growth at the company, some key levels that you're pushing. Maybe you can speak to that in terms of the profile of the company and what you want to build there. Sorry, in areas or different countries, regions? It can be like particular areas within the company that you want to focus on, but also outside the company and maybe outside in other countries are things that you're seeing as areas of good opportunities. I think you mentioned a bit about NFTs and all. Mm, yes. So maybe so I think the thing is, is digital and technology. I want us to be the best in that particular space. The next thing is really this whole space of social influence. We have two particular platforms, which we want to figure out how we bring into the market soonest. And when I talk of social influence, we now recognize that influencers social influence, content development, that whole space is having a much bigger impact and the way consumers think. So for me, I'm very clear that is something we have to be able to manage end to end from this is a client, this is what I want to do, who are the influence, what's going to be the brief, measuring the performance again, the work that is done and being able then, of course, to, to pay them in a timely fashion. There are two products that we have in our portfolio, globally WPP products, which we want to make sure we can activate in this market. So that for me is the technology space, really a big one for me. And I said it's social influence. And then in terms of the terminal in the financials for 2022, I think we noticed a profit of 75 million from a loss of 38 million the previous year. Can you speak a bit mm -hmm. about financials, maybe a bit of a high level? view on what's the difference between the two years, 2021 and 2022? I think the key message is, as we said, yes, year-on-year -year profit before tax went up 180%. We improved increased values to our shareholders with earnings per share growth of 450%, 450% yeah, growth. 
what did we do differently and what are we going to continue to do differently? Because this is not a once-off thing. It's a continuous journey we're on. The first thing is really focusing on what do we want to do to continue to drive top line? What are we going to do in the middle? And in the middle is really driving a lot more value and from our cost base. How do we manage our cost base and make sure it is a lot more future fit for what we want to do? And then, yeah, so in terms of our improvement of our result, the number of things, we had a number of tailwinds that supported us. We have a healthy cash base. Based on that, we're able to benefit quite a bit from Forex and the Forex gains that we made in the year, the reserves that we hold. So that is a fantastic tailwind that, that helped us in our results in the year as well. Before I hand over to Rama, who's joined me here. Maybe I can ask you a question about the subsidiaries. There was an issue around subsidiaries last year. So maybe you can speak a bit about it, just to clarify what was happening. I don't know. What issue around subsidiaries? It's a bit of a write-off of investment, I think around 4.7 billion. No, it's a financial thing that you do. We literally had to move to our share reserve. So what happened is, as we're a combination of very many businesses, I think that's a point we have been saying all along as a business. When I outlined the many businesses that make WPP Scan Group, it includes all the WPP subsidiaries, many of which we had bought at a particular time. In effect, what we were doing is that if you look in the last few years, we made investments in those subsidiaries. Now, the values of those investments may have gone, things depreciate. So what we did is we said, okay, let's move this 4.7 billion that we had to a merger reserve, yeah, as opposed to it being a value which we know has depreciated over time. As with every single, (laughs) their things depreciate, any value that you have, it depreciates. The values of our shares, for example, and a lot of shares on this stock exchange have, have depreciated. So you need to recognize that either value appreciation or depreciation somewhere. And so that's what we did with that particular amount of money. I think the specific question was about maybe the issues around the delay in results, I think in 2021, it should be before you came in, it's around the sale of some interest in some of the subsidiaries and which are the continuing Oh, no. no that's a long time ago. It wasn't 2021. No, our results were not delayed. For t- I was there. Okay. 2022, last year, I was the one who was there when we announced 2021 and there was no delay. The delay was a 2020. Oh, it yes. was done in 2021. So it's a long time ago. It's two years and we've moved on. We right. had two straight years now of unqualified results. Okay. Rama, you're here. Haribo, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to you, Patricia, for making time for this conversation. I was listening to some of your work a little earlier on. People of a certain age will probably remember a lot of the, some of the old, old from Omo and I think Gilbert as well. Are you giving away your age? Right? Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I think I can still probably hum the tune of one of those blue band ads from many years ago. Every day, bring something. Yes, my best one was the sunlight one. Sunlight, sunlight and water. Oh, yeah. It's... Sunlight and water. That one. Do you remember that one? Yeah. And then, of course, it's all that you need. And all the old Omo ads, you know, the, the fishmonger in Kisumu was talking about how for her, going back to the point you were making, for her, it was, she was talking about what Omo does. I've linked it down to some of the tweets earlier. There's a bit of interesting uh-huh. nostalgia. <laughs> I've seen some of the tweets um, doing a lot of nostalgia. My days, I remember even Satin Sheen. I don't know if any of you remember good old 
certain shit. Oh no, that's so way we, before my yeah, time. And that's before it is. But I, yeah. I just have yeah. two questions for you. First, the first one is a bit operational because going back to my undergrad days, back then when we were learning about yes. media buying, it was fairly straightforward. Yes. You think about billboards, radio, TV, print. Fast forward to 2023, yes. it's a completely different matter. There's all of those. And then now you have to add in Facebook, Instagram, yes. TikTok, uh, yes. various other yes. media online. How do you deal with the challenge around analysis paralysis? Because you've got this flood of data, but you need to figure out, okay, what works, what doesn't work. The second question is a bit more, I think, operational. Because looking at your numbers for 2021, because that's the annual report I remember reading. Nigeria and Ghana account for around 7 8% of revenue. And granted, these are markets that have enormous potential, but at the same time, they're going through a fairly nasty set of adjustments. What's the game plan? for those markets over the medium term? I think for me, the fun is the beauty of data mining and the tools that we have, they allow you to use it to ask the right questions and to cross-reference things. I think some of the things that really excite me now, including when we do, when we speak to clients around, for example, the development of a media campaign, is using our audience origins data. So every quarter in eight markets, I believe in Africa now, we do analysis digitally. They no longer these days of diaries and going to speak to people with a pen and paper. Digitally, what are you doing? What is your interest? What are you trying? So it allows you, it's a lot faster, it's easier. But the beauty of this particular space and technology, it allows you to cross-reference things. It also enables the mining of that data to be a lot easier if you know the right questions to ask. So for me, data paralysis, analysis, yes. But what is happening now is with the right tools, it gets reduced because what you're doing more of is cross-referencing to get the right response in order to know what it is you need to do, as opposed to analyzing endlessly and not knowing where you're going. For example, if I want to figure out I want to do a campaign for diapers. I am able to cross-reference people buy diapers. What else may they do? Then what environment do I go to in order to make sure I meet them? And the regurgitation, the ability to have data mining do it for you because we have all the tools, I think has made life a lot easier. And it's the same way when you buy now. You don't just throw mud on a wall and hope some will stick because you're able to understand in this environment, am I going to hit the targets and the person who's going to be interested in this? And real time, if they are, because if they don't click on it, they don't watch it, then it tells you actually I failed. So I think for me, that's some of the positive stuff around data. With respect to West Africa, yes, Ghana for us is was a big bet. It's something that we focus on. We've seen the economic challenges in those two markets. Ghana, lots of promise, great market from an enabling work environment, gone through very tough economic times. But what you find with a lot of our businesses, a market may be just the position where we do things. So if you look at a lot of the work that we do for MasterCard Foundation, a lot of it or gate, it, it starts in Ghana, but it's for the region. So the component that is attributable to Ghana may be small because yeah, the briefs came from the Ghana business, but it's to do the work across Africa. And then we attribute it to the different markets. Nigeria, a lot tougher, as I've said. Getting any money out of there is an absolute nightmare, um, but and a much harder market to really crack, despite its size, because there are just so many players there. 
Indeed. I just want to go back to the data question a bit, because one of the things that I end up seeing, and mm-hmm. it's probably a slightly crude inference, because I see this argument flying back and forth between banks on one hand and telcos and they're like, no, we own the data. So for example, if the bank is saying, we'd like to see what mobile transactions are like, so we can create better products for our clients, the telco guys would be like, mm-hmm. probably not. That's our data. So when mm-hmm. it comes to that sort of gatekeeping and data ownership questions between you as the agency is scan group and all these tech platforms that are not necessarily domiciled yet. How do you manage that friction? I think it's simply because we don't actually ever own any of the data. Anything we give you is to help support you manage your data. We're not the ones doing it. The only data we work with is what we have researched and we have done ourselves. I don't know if that answers your question. So with a platform like Optimus, it's not us. We're giving you this platform and tool you plug in into it. It's your teams that work with it to get the information and data. We're just supporting it and working it to make sure it responds and we develop it to respond to the questions that you have. But the data will never sit with us. One last question for you, because I know I have to hand back to Eric in a bit. And this has been a huge debate and I'm sure your managers have had it internally. Where's the value in using influencers? If you were to make an elevator pitch, right, in two minutes and say, look, this is why we need to have influencers as part of a campaign doing X, Y, Z. There's some instances you walk into boardrooms, you walk into pitch meetings and managers is really Instagram kids, TikTokers. Why am I spending money on these guys? But there is value there, but make the elevator pitch. Influence is the most direct way to humanize real impact. It has also become the most trusted platform when growing customer relationships. So in the world we live in today, if I see somebody doing something, living something, experiencing something, I am more likely to believe them than something which I feel may be manufactured in order to confuse me, influence me, or drive me in a direction that I may not choose. And that is pretty succinct. Eric, thank you very much. Back to you. All right, Rama, go back to enjoying the 90s and 80s kind of ad Hey, they're well-written ads. Yeah. I, I, I should say, though, one thing I was a bit disappointed when I, like, Luba, and I always thought it's a Kenyan thing. And then I went a, a little bit outside now, and then I realized it's not. Now it belongs to one of our clients, actually, Upfield. And they bought Blue Band and all the margarine brands, actually, from Unilever. Rana, one, the good thing about the 90s, at least in this conversation, is you didn't have to live through a situation where a version of your name was plastered all over the side of a margarine brand that was in the market at the time. Do you cue all the jokes around how you go out of school on Monday and kids would be like, did you actually have Rama with your sandwich again? Was this blue band in South Africa? It was still a huge brand yeah. over there. It never really took off here, but yes, it is. In, in South Africa, yes, it was massive. Yes. And a question on that also, there's a bit of the discussion around these brands that almost define a category. What is all the reflection around brands that actually become names that define a category almost immediately? That is powerful. That just tells you the power of that brand. Because even when you get brands which are probably got a bigger share, people will still refer to them as that particular brand. It's probably if you look at Vaseline, for example, whatever you say, when you tell somebody, Vaseline. People get it. When a mother says, umepaka Vaseline, even if they're putting what's a milking jelly, the very popular one now, even if you're using that, that, that is just what is. 
Yeah. And so what and your ability. I think what makes it is because they become the communication, the relevance of their usage becomes such an integral part of the fabric of that society. And so it just sticks. And until it becomes irrelevant as a category or product, then that's when you die. But then also like in terms of evolution of the adverts, in, especially in Kenya, if you look at it, like they keep evolving because Safaricom hasn't always done the same kind of adverts over a period of time. And then the mm. adverts that are made almost for a particular period of time. Yeah, if you try to do them like two or three years again later, it doesn't hit this. Is there a mm. bit of luck involved? If you have a fantastic campaign that connects, it will con- connect. We developed the member campaign for equity. can't remember. It's what, 15 years now? And yes, then the question and, is yeah. how you keep evolving that member campaign. I am a member, I'm a member. And I think for me, it is how you continue to drive the relevance of it to the consumer of today. Yeah. And it's, as I said, if something is born of a powerful insight, it then stands the test of time. Member stands the test of time because that's what they sell. When you come to us, we're family, you're a member of this particular family. So your ability to continue to communicate that time and time now, making it more relevant to the times that you live in, that is the power of some of these things in the campaigns. You become irrelevant if you don't do that. The second thing is, as you can imagine now, is because people are, Tarana's question around data, it's the same with what you're hit with now. You're hit with so much communication, so much stuff every single day. So imagine trying to drive standout in that. So you have to become cleverer in terms of the things you do that drive memorability and impact to that particular time. So yes, it's tougher from that perspective, staying top of mind and, and driving that, you know, that connection. A colleague of mine, Eric, here has a couple of questions. So have you ever turned down some campaigns and why? Turned them down as in developing them? Yeah, maybe like developing them a pitch and then you're like, okay, you, you turn it feet, you turn down a brand or something like that. I don't know. Not in my time. I mean, in my time as a consumer, as a customer, yes. I mean, as a client, yes. There have been campaigns that have been presented and I've said, no, that doesn't connect. It's great. It's a total disconnect with what the brand is and what the consumer expectation is. So in that time, yes. But in developing our campaigns, we have a process. We get the brief. We think of a strategy. We test it. And even before we even take it out, actually, we test it also with consumers. And if it doesn't connect, we go back to the drawing board. Before I ask the next question, I see Andrew here. Andrew, do you have a question or a comment? Um, thank you very much, Eric. I do have two questions, two quick questions. And thanks, Patricia, for coming on. I missed quite a a bit of your story, but I'll definitely replay the recording to hear much of what I missed. So I do have two questions. One, listening to your client list is mostly made up of customers that have deep pockets. I wonder, one, do you guys have products for the SME sort of category? And then the second one is with technology coming in, it has liberalized quite a lot of the tools that could only be afforded by the big and mighty companies. But Mm -hmm. now it's liberalized. You've got these graphic editing tools. Your basic phone camera is, is good enough to shoot a small ad. You've got the influencers in and of themselves as creative directors, so they can come in 
and look at your product, figure mm-hmm. out how you position. Mm-hmm. So how are you guys trying to differentiate and still remain relevant within that space now with the onward of new technologies that are now easily accessible? Thanks. I think for me, the most important thing to your question is that you figure out where is your gap? What is it you're able to do best? So we recognize that if I talk about influencers, for example, where we play is trying to give opportunities to those influencers. How do you do that? You create and you work with platforms that are able to bring them together and make sure they all have opportunities to do this thing that they do, which is content creation. How do we add value to our clients? We add value because then we have platforms which are able to measure and look at if it's an influencer, who engages with this particular influencer and whoever engages with that influencers, do they fit in with what your brand stands for and who the consumer you're trying to reach? So that's a value and that's where we recognize a value that we can play in order to support the whole ecosystem and the changes in which communication is going to happen. In terms of the question that you asked around SMEs, of course, I, with everybody, you always talk about the big, big space first, because that's what you do. If I'm good enough for the big ones, then guess what? Even the small, I'll be able to respond to that. So yes, we do work on particular opportunities, products. I am trying to test now probably an AI product that we can market and use, especially for SMEs, because then it allows them to, from a value point of view, they don't have huge budgets. They're not Coca-Cola to have the huge global budgets that those companies may have. How do we make sure we continue to support them to get the caliber and the quality? So we do things like that. The second thing is because of the way we sell our services, we work with from a retainer base to a project base. And even when we do projects, we're able to assess what's a big project, what's a medium project, what's a small project, what are the resources we put behind it, therefore what would be the cost. So even for the smaller businesses, we're able then to package it that way for them so that they're able to enjoy the benefits of our capacity and capability and our tools. I think in terms of also telling the stories of marketing, one of the things I used to enjoy in reading marketing books is the success stories and some of these things that were not supposed to work, but then they worked and resonated really well. Are there some of those mm-hmm. kind of stories that you have with you in terms of your journey where you see maybe a marketing campaign that wasn't supposed to work out, but somehow it resonated with the clients or with the audience very well? Any in such stories? I'm sure they are, but gosh, I can't think top of head it's now. <laughs> There were certainly some, there were certainly some in the past, which you thought, oh my goodness, how could that go anywhere? And then it winds up going somewhere. (laughs) Um, Let me give you an example, which I always remember, actually. I don't know how many remember the dancing ATM machine, which was when Barclays Barclays uh, Bank at the time launched for the first time. And they had this Dumbelow, you know, dancing ATM and it was an animation. Rama is laughing. You are Rama knows it. Rama he knows it very well. Now, yes. if you had tried to tell a serious blue chip, blue bag, or a corporate, blah, blah, at the time, that we're going to have a machine which is a serious new product we're offering, cutting edge. ATMs weren't big those days. Remember, mm-hmm. they were the first ATM in the market. And the way we're going to introduce it is by having something animating this ATM dancing <laughs> to some Lingala music. They'd have gone blue in the face, true to the color of the brand at the time. 
Because we're serious. We're serious. We're friends. How could we make it so frivolous? Like that wound up being one of the most powerful and memorable campaigns. In terms of driving impact and from a launch perspective, this is what we've done. Rama remembers it. And I'm sure if there are other Ramas on this group, they remember it. I think those are some of the things I think that very bold, very bold moves that make a difference. But then how do you get bold ideas through to clients, especially in the finance space? We're very conservative. <laughs> we don't want to, to be shaken too far away from the comfort zone. And I think Rama has a question after that, but like, how do you get those ideas through to the boardroom and through to the client who is actually paying? What you do is, first of all, if you're able to tell the client, what is your objective? You want to launch something new. You want to create standout and you want to create memorability. So there are particular things you can tell them. Let's put it out there if we create the memorability or the whatever. If create such a polarized, we could pull it out. But by the time we do that, everybody will know you'll have done that. So if you're able to sell something compelling to a client, which speaks to one of the objectives that they really have, it helps. The second thing is getting clients who are indeed brave and bold. And I think for me, uh, the times I enjoyed the most as, as a client in my marketing world was when agencies could come up with real creative ideas and they really connected with an objective that I had. But they made me uncomfortable because it was that discomfort that told me that they were different and they were going to be big. Remember, if something doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, it's going to be vanilla. It's going to be something that is a run of the mill. So the ability for something to make you uncomfortable is what I think also I value quite a bit in terms of making sure it's going to stand out. Impressive. Rama, you had a question? Patricia, you sort of pivot back briefly into the finance side of the business for a moment, mm -hmm. if I will. In conversation with, uh, with a very able CEO, Miriam Kagwa, last week, Friday, I think. And I know this came up as well in your last mm -hmm. EGM. There, there are shareholders who will say, you know what? Look, we, our shares have gone down by, I think, around 80% in the last five years. Mm -hmm. Share price mm -hmm. is around, around 2 US cents, 2, two shillings mm -hmm. 99. Is there perhaps an argument for a share buyback. And Miriam made the argument that no, we don't think there is a case for one at the moment, but could you please elaborate on the pros and cons as you see it from the CEO seat from a board level and say, look, yes, there's a bit of cash in the business now, but this is why we think we should keep the cash in the business, reinvest and expand our operations. And before I answer that, Patricia, there's a question also that's from the audience about whether you thoughts about delisting the company, perhaps if you want to check bug values, I think that it went wrong in hand without drama is talking about maybe shareholders who wants to maximum value from the company. I always sit down and say, oh my goodness, this question is definitely going to come up and we have to figure out and what is the rationale and everything else. We are working towards delivering strong performance this year. In the brief, we did speak that our first quarter, for the first time, we are seeing growth. We had a 6% growth over the previous year in the first quarter and in our results. And we believe by the time we speak to our half year, if we continue on this trajectory, it will edge the share price a little bit higher. Of course, taking into consideration the fact that overall anyway, our stock exchange is down. And we recognize that, yes, there are negative macroeconomic factors which affect the NSE index and the trading volumes and the bourse. 
And the fact that, of course, we have a large constituency of these foreign investors who are looking at these global factors and getting out of this particular market. And this is a reflection of what's happened on our stock exchange over the last year and is continuing to happen on our stock exchange. But we believe that if we at least start to demonstrate that we are growing, we're driving more volume from an operating profit point of view, the sentiment of the shareholders will be reflected and our share price can start to come up. Why do we believe at this point that the cash up, that cash up we have is helping us in a number of ways? If we look at the benefits that we get from media buying, we have these buying deals, we call them PPDs, which is you negotiate to get the best pricing from media houses because you're able to pay a little bit ahead. That, these are some of the benefits that we're able to get because we have that cash and that value is given back to our client base. Without that cash, we'd not be able to do that. We are continuing to evaluate what are the opportunities for us out there in terms of supporting that this agenda we have in terms of technology growth, regional expansion, etc., we wouldn't be able to have the headroom to do that if we don't have the cash. So those are some of our arguments as to why we will continue to hold and why we continue to have the money. In terms of delisting, it's not something we've looked at this point. As with everything in business, when the time is right and if the opportunity presents itself, then at that point, we will look at it. But it's not something we're looking at this particular time. Rama, is that satisfactory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just one, one last question for Patricia. Between all the many interesting individuals that we've had in our integrated marketing comm space over the last two decades, there's a massive amount of interesting stories about campaigns that worked, businesses and agencies being built from the ground up. Uh, interesting campaigns around, I remember the, we used to call, we referred to this at some point, I think in undergrad as the Tusker Wars, back when Castle was mm -hmm. trying to crack the market. But between yourself, Barrett, George Luter, when he was running a media running campaign agency, mm. what are you mm. guys writing a book? You want to hear these stories? My goodness, that is a and brilliant complete, idea. Complete no, to the I podcast. Need to create some space. Totally. I need to create the space. My goodness, I love people to give me ideas. And I think some of the actors in some of these like ad campaigns, they were childhood like heroes for us. And it's really nice to hear how their lives went on with some of these kind of adverts, how their lives changed and yeah. stuff. I think there's something there, maybe WPP Scandal can create for us and then oh my goodness. as one like to partner, then distribute that. Thank you. Such a brilliant idea. I'm going to figure out how we do that. We celebrated 40 years of ScanAd as of end of last year. So that probably could be our benchmark. Last year, I sat down with Roger Stedman, who you remember from those days, Rose Kimoto. Those are people from that generation and that time. And we were recanting and reviewing some of these old tales. So the ability to put it down, I think, is a very interesting idea. Let's look at how we do it. Yeah, absolutely. Was the Safaricom Nafurahia ad concept, that was a scanned one, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, there's that. I think the other one that probably comes to mind was... It's a very old ad, I think, back when Londro was still a bit of a big company here. Yeah. Go to franchise and they had this ad where I think it was a trailer running, driving through a dry lake bed and a bunch of Toyota cars. And for those of us who yeah. grew up with the rally, with the WRC and stuff like that, and you still remember it yeah. 10, 20, 30 years on. It's, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of institutional memory, I think, that yeah. definitely should be put together. 
And I think this is the best time to put it where the memories are still fresh. I think some of these are like 20 years ago. So I think if you wait another 10 years, this will be gone. Yes. And we need to make it fun and relevant to the generation of today. You know the Kiwi and also? There's... Uh, I the think Kiwi Shine, I think that was done by Scanner. I think it may have been. I can't remember what Scanner or Sachi. It might have been. I can't recall now. These are three decades right. down the line. When uh, the South African brand came, I think, to challenge Tusk and then Tusk launched the Our Country or Beer thing. That's our something country, that you... Yeah, yeah that, that was brilliant as well. I think it was, it probably was one of the Scanner. Yeah, you remember that time Scanner was the only agency, actually, to be fair. Yeah. There were others. But if you really top of mind, that was it. And I think that's where I want WPP Scan Group to go back to that. When you think advertising agency, it's WPP Scan Group. I wanted to ask you more of a question or reflections uh, in terms of your career for maybe younger people starting out in the marketing profession. And maybe you can give you a, a, an advice to a younger self, some of the tips you can give them in terms of rising up and the ladder and what they can do differently, or at least learn from you. Okay. Gosh, there's so many tidbits that I usually give de- depending on the forums. And when I'm looking people in the eye, I have to learn how to speak to space <laughs> as I'm doing right now. I think for me, one of the bigger tips that I'd give to myself is just this believe in yourself. When you're young, and it's different, find younger people now a lot more self-confident. They have a greater power to believe in possibility and the world is theirs to have. And I think young people need to continue believing that. On the softer side, I think, is a lesson that I've learned even as I look back, is the power of relationships, the power of making sure that as you go forward, you do not leave a trail of blood behind. When I I always use that expression, why do I say that? I don't think it's ever going to change that if you touch people positively, as you go through life, good karma always comes back to you. So if there's one thing I have learned in my life, and now when I reflect 30 years on from a career point of view, it's really the good karma that comes back, born of if you do things from a good space. Look, not everybody's going to like you. You're going to make tough decisions. You're going to do tough things at a particular time. But if you're doing them for the right reasons and to secure a future, then with time, people will see that and they'll come back and say, okay, I may have hated you at that time for that, doing this or whatever, but I, you did it from a good place. And for that, I am grateful because we're able to be here now. So I think that for me is the most important thing, that in everything you do it for good, for the good that's going to come out of it, and just recognize as long as that's why you're doing it and you're not leaving that trail of blood, the good karma will come back to you. All right. And the member campaign, by the way, any story around it that we can take home? I love, I think it was one of the best campaigns. I remember even when it came out, everybody talked about it. I'm a member. What are you talking about? And the talkability, I think for me, is that very point that I make that a good campaign creates talkability. A good campaign is really speaking to the fabric of who you are, your values, what you stand for and everything that you are. If you speak equity, anybody says I'm a member, it's understood. Nobody needs to say anything else. It's understood. And that I'm a member speaks to so many things. Speaks to the fact this is my home. Speaks to the fact that this is ours. Speaks to the fact this is where I'm comfortable. Speaks to that, listen, here is where I belong. 
and from just a simple expression and our ability then to keep making that eternal over time and growing it and creating the next space for it is what we call an everlasting or a sustainable campaign for any brand. So I think that's all I can say around that one. So we want to have you for an hour and Velma has made us extend to one and a half, which is very interesting conversation. I think this was a timely conversation in terms of learning from you and learning from everything that you're doing. Um, so we really wish you well at WPP Scan Group. Before I give you time to give any closing thoughts, Andrew, Rama, anything you wanted to say? No, nothing from me. I'm good. All right. Andrew? Thanks again, Eric. Yeah, just a quick one. I know you're just settling in at WPP and chatting your tenure there. I wonder what's the next phase of Patricia is going to be about. And also a little bit related to the member thing. I wonder how you guys are able to capture, I don't know, how, how would you call it? The relatability in the language and the things that are there. Is it through the influencers you employ? How are you able to tap in and pick up that lingo that Kenyans would use or whichever market you're targeting? How do you do that? Thanks. I, because we have great creators. <laughs> but I think, let, let's be candid. I think with everything that you do, if you're not connected to the consumer, it's unlikely you're going to know what's going on. And that is a work that a lot of the creatives and the strategists at the agencies do. The connection with the consumer, when you meet a client, it's your ability to really hear what do the consumers, meet those consumers, listen to their language, and then be able to figure out how you play it back in a word that captures and encapsulates everything that you've heard. That I think is the power of great creatives and great strategies. And as an agency, we don't have a shortage of those. Patricia, maybe you can give us your clothing thoughts and uh, maybe invite people to come and buy WPP Stein Group shares and be part of the journey. Oh, that you please have. do that. At three shillings a share, it can only go up. I remember I still kick myself today that I did not buy Safaricom shares when they were two shillings and 50 cents. And they stayed two shillings and 50 cents for many of you remember for a long time. They're now 20 shillings a share. But imagine that. And I think if you believe and anybody believes in what we're around, you can't go wrong. It's not going to go any lower. At the three shillings, if nothing else, you'll at least retain the value of what you have. So please buy the shares. I even tell members of staff, that's how you get skin in the game. Buy it at three shillings. My last parting shot is, look, when we talk advertising and everything, the future is not tomorrow. The future is now. And the rate at which things are changing, the trends that are happening now, when I look at gig economy and the fact that now this whole gig economy is taking over everything, that people want short-term things that they do very well move to the next thing. That is what the millennials and the Gen Zs want. How do we make sure we are fit and we're able to harness that? The second thing, the impact, the absolute impact on influence in terms of the way we do things. I don't want to be told. I want to be influenced. And the final parting shot for me is AI. AI. That is really going to step change and shift the way we do things, drive the efficiencies around how things are done. It's not going to take away jobs. It's going to change the skill set of jobs and how they're done. So if you're not equipping yourself to be in that space, that's the only time you're going to be irrelevant. If you equip yourself to be in any of these spaces I speak to, then you're going to be relevant for the future. That is now.
I think that's a good place to close out. Thank you so much, Patricia, for joining us. We hope that you can be joining us a bit more regularly to share with us. I can. I'll take you up on the offer, especially on bringing you back here. Bring us some of your best talents. Also discuss some of the behind the kind of campaign that they've done. It would be really nice and how they entrench themselves in the psyche of Cadence. So that would be very interesting to look at. So on that note, thank you once again. And thank you for the team that has also helped bring you here. Thank you for the Mwango team also that is working behind the scenes to help make sure that this space is as excellent as it is. Some of them are in the audience, so thank you so much. Uh, so thank you once again, Patricia, for coming. Thanks, Rama, for joining in and Andrew also for coming in to ask questions.